Our text today is Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be here today and to study and to hear your word. Lord, we ask you to impress this upon our hearts and upon our mouths and upon our minds that we may carry these words with us everywhere we go. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. So I think it was, it wasn't two weeks ago, which is usually my marker of time for everything, but I think it was my first year and my first semester in seminary, I took a class called The Personal Life of the Christian Leader, and it was designed to look at, especially for new pastors, what the fruits of a Christian leader should look like, what their prayer life should look like, how they should respond to their own sin, how they should be repentant and to grow, all of these things. It was a, it was a really interesting class, but there was, a, there was a part of the class when the professor pulled up, it's right over there on the, the side there, a picture of that Rembrandt painting there. And that painting is called Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And he gave us this exercise to stare, or maybe gaze. I'm not much of an art person, so I don't know what the appropriate term would be if you were supposed to longingly or long look at a piece of art, stare, gaze. But he asked us to, to stare at the, the picture and the painting, and he said, who, you should look at the people that are in the boat and figure out who you identify with. Who in that painting do you identify with the most? And so when you're done today and we're done with worship, I encourage you to go take a look and you can see kind of what he was talking about. But I don't remember much of the exercise other than I do remember that the painting itself moved me. It moved me so much that I asked my mother that year for my birthday or for Christmas for a framed copy of it, which is hanging in our bedroom. And then because I also loved it so much, my first office at the first church I worked at, I bought that copy and hung that in my office. And then when I left that church, that hangs in our living room now. So we have two copies of this in the house because I love it so much. And this piece of art really fascinates me. It captivates me. And I had actually hoped on one of my travels to be able to see it in person. But alas, somebody stole it from the Boston Art Museum in 1990. Like cut it out of the frame and rolled it up and they've never found it. Isn't that crazy? How do you... I don't know much about art at all, let alone like, and if any of you actually have the answer to this, it could be problematic, but I don't know how one moves expensive stolen art. I guess there's probably some underground. You think somebody would notice, be like, oh, it's a nice painting on your wall. What is that? Oh, that's a Rembrandt. <laughs> but it captivates me, uh, and I don't really know much about art, but this particular painting captivates me because it is so full of nuance. And I actually really love the way that Rembrandt captures Bible scenes. That same year, I asked for Christmas for a book of Rembrandt's Christian paintings, which are really good. I have it at the, in my study at home if you ever like to see it. But I do know basically nothing about art. But I know that as over the years that I've stared at this painting, that I've gazed at this painting, I see deeper and deeper depth in it. I see small things that I hadn't ever noticed before. And it's similar with our passage today. It's a passage that if you've been in church or you've read the Gospels, you're familiar with this story. 
But like the painting, as I read these things more, as I study these things more, as I grow in God's Word more, I see more and more depth. I, I find smaller things that are nuanced to pick out that are actually really big things. There's more and more detail. And I would say that's probably true with most things that we're exposed to in life, right? We can become complacent, or we can learn to dive deeper and deeper and see new and fresh things in it. So that's what I want to do today. I want to dive in deep, and I want to take this deep dive, bless you, because the text isn't going to just force us to think deeply about the text, but hopefully the text is going to force us to think deeply about our faith because that's what the passage is about today. It's about our whole foundation as Christians, the foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ. Our story continues from last week. So Jesus had been teaching and he had been healing, and you can assume that these days of teaching and healing and, and great crowds following him probably caused Jesus to be pretty tired and pretty exhausted. I would imagine Jesus went to bed tired and woke up early. Last night's outpost, if you missed it. So he gives, he gives these orders at the beginning of the passage. He says, go to the other side. What is he talking about? Go to the other side of what? He's actually speaking about the Sea of Galilee. And I was looking this morning. The Bible software that I have has incredible, an incredible atlas. It's really cool. And especially like the piloty, kind of nerdy, atlasy map chart people in here. Super cool. And you can plot all the journeys of Jesus and the disciples and Paul and on these maps and run filters and it doesn't matter. But I was looking at this and trying to figure out it's about a two-hour boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. And so that's what actually sets the stage for this short passage, this, this, this short statement at the beginning of our passage. It says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him which would make sense. Jesus' followers following him when he got in the boat. But see, there's a point here. There's a small point that's actually a big point that we miss, and it actually changes our understanding of this particular story. Do you remember what the occupation of most of the disciples or many of the disciples was? They were fishermen. They were fishermen. And this is an easy part of the story that we can overlook when we are thinking about the events that are about to take place. Do you suppose that fishing in the first century was an easy job? I would probably guess that fishing in the first century was not an easy job. I would imagine it was backbreaking. Uh, these ships were wooden, they were leaky, they had no mechanical supports, they were fishing with nets, there were no life jackets, there was no formal weather protection, there was no radar, there was no sonar, there was no emergency beacon, there was probably no coffee. You kind of get the idea, right? The people who were on this boat, these fishermen, were really tough men. Did you guys ever watch the show The Deadliest Catch? I don't even know, is The Deadliest Catch still on? It's been a long time since I've, yeah, probably. It's probably going on in perpetuity like everything else. But back in the day when I still watched TV, I used to watch The Deadliest Catch. It was like this, if you haven't seen it, it was this reality, air quotes, documentary, air quotes, about crab fishing on the Bering Sea. So it's these bunch of ships that race out to catch their, I think it's a lottery system, they, they figure out you know, what their max amount of crab they can catch, and they go out to catch it, and you know, it's very dramatic, and the waves are crashing. But each year, each of the boats usually have one brand new guy on the boat. Somebody that's chasing the big dollars, right? Because the fishermen split the pot, they split the cash pot, 
a share of their earnings. And so the idea is you get out there, you work real hard, you make a whole bunch of cash, and you come back, it looks very appealing. But every year, there's some brand new guy, the Greenhorn. And this dude is a hot mess. Can't stand on the deck, usually is throwing up over the side at some point in the beginning, isn't used to long hours, being cold, tired, is kind of whiny in the back corner, hiding near the gear. They're shivering in the frigid cold. They're also the one that is on the receiving end of all of the hazing, I mean team building and practical jokes that probably take place on the boat. It was a really fun show to watch, but it was also a really scary show to watch because the sea is an unforgiving place. I remember reading once about some Hollywood, this is totally unrelated, some Hollywood special effects guy and somebody asked him like, what's the scariest thing you work with? Like fire, explosives, and the guy's like water. Water, hands down, it's uncontrollable, people drown, but that makes sense. Water, water is a very unforgiving place. The sea is a very unforgiving place. If you are in the Bering Sea and you fall overboard, even before you drown, you might just hit hypothermia if you're not in a survival suit. And hypothermia can set in very fast. People right now in fishing boats today in 2023 can get incredibly hurt and they can be really far from medical care, and they still have really good tools potentially on these, uh, these boats, right? They've got medical kits and radios and tourniquets and the like. Now rewind and imagine you're in the first century and you're on a wooden sailboat trying to fish with nets, with none of the supports that we have in a still very dangerous business now. So we can also assume that these, these disciples were not greenhorns. This is not their first rodeo out trying to catch fish. This is the manner in which they earn a living. This is their vocation. And so that's the context that we have to actually approach the next two verses with, with the fact that these were skilled fishermen. These were people who were used to being on the water and the hazards that come with the water. They were not brand new. So verses 24 and 25 again, it says, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. You see, little details make big differences. What do you think of when you think great storm? You guys have a place out in Nebraska, right? You get some big storms in Nebraska, right? Thunder booming, rain's pounding down, maybe, uh, maybe the wind is, is howling. We've all seen these kinds of storms. I've seen storms over the equator that are pushing up above 50,000 feet, huge thunder, thunderheads, lightning. Maybe you've even been on the water in a storm, and you can imagine what it's like seeing the waves crashing over the, bo uh, over the, the bow of the boat. It's rocking back and for backwards and forwards. We get big storms here. Kansas gets big storms. Nebraska gets big storms. But interestingly enough, that's not what the Greek word says at all. The Greek word, the Greek word used for storms is the word seismos. Does that sound like anything you might recognize in English? Maybe like seismic? What do we measure on a seismic scale? We measure earthquakes on the seismic scale. The word that is used in Greek in the New Testament is actually saying that there was an earthquake taking place. This isn't just your regular storm on the water. It is a great storm. It is a seismic storm. It is an earthquake. That word is only used two other times in the New Testament, and they both speak of uh, the earthquake at the end of Matthew that takes place. It literally means an earthquake. We all know now, I just read my notes, so when I wrote the sermon, the death toll in Turkey was 22,000. When I woke up this morning, the Wall Street Journal reported it as 33,000. It's two days difference from when I wrote the sermon and when we see today 
another 11,000 people they found perished. Earthquakes are really scary. And they're scary because there's absolutely nothing you can do if you're in an earthquake. The ground beneath you, the firm foundation below you, is no longer firm anymore, and it is shaking. It is out of your control, shaking ground. Shaking so much, in this case, that the boat was being swamped, covered. That word there actually means veiled or concealed. The waves were so large, so large it was concealing the boat, which means we should probably talk about the boat as well. It was not a tiny little rowboat. It wasn't a little dinghy. I just really wanted to say dinghy in the sermon. They're making a two-hour journey across the Sea of Galilee in a boat that had to comfortably at least hold 13 people. Probably 30 feet long at least, probably 10 feet wide, wind and sails. And likely, it would have been the fishermen who were sailing the boat for Jesus because that was what they knew how to do, was sail boats. And so now there is an earthquake crashing against this boat with these fishermen in it, so big that the waves are veiling and concealing the boat. And so what do the disciples go do? They wake up Jesus because he is sleeping. Now, some of the wives may say, my husband can sleep through nuclear war, so I can understand how this could happen. (laughs) I am not one of those people. But he is sleeping in the middle of an earthquake. I mean, for me, if the furnace kicks on, which it does at 5 a.m. every morning, I wake up when the furnace kicks on. Jesus was sleeping through an earthquake. You might ask yourself, how can Jesus sleep through an earthquake? Well, the first is Jesus probably was incredibly tired. And I don't mean that in any tongue-in-cheek or or satirical way. I mean he was probably exhausted, both physically and emotionally. He was fully man as much as he was fully God. And, And he was doing incredible things, being followed by thousands of people. Of course, he was tired. But he's also asleep because he's also fully God. Who is in control of every aspect of the world? Every blade of grass, every bird in the air, every hair on your head. Who can actually control the sea? Only God. Psalm 89, 8 through 9 says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. God is the only person that controls the seas. So Christ can sleep because he's really tired and he's also really God and all these things serve his purpose. All things serve Christ's purpose. That's an important thing for us to keep in our mind. He is able to sleep through the storm because of exhaustion and he has true sinless faith. Because the reality of life, friends, is that everything in life serves God's sovereign purpose. There is nothing that God is not aware of. It's this place that the disciples are in when they go and wake up Jesus, and they give him an imperative. They say, save us! You can actually see the whole, like, sinful human experience in what they say. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. There's a lot in those six words. First, they acknowledge him as Lord. They acknowledge it, who he is, and that he has the power to save them. That's why they give him the imperative, save us. So there's an acknowledgement that he actually can save them. And they acknowledge that the situation is so dire that it is left only up to him to save them. That even with their skills, even with all the fishing that they have done, all of the, would it be seamanship, boatmanship? 
salesmanship, all of their superior boat handling skills, that they realize that even in that situation, the only person that can save them is Jesus. So they're making a statement actually about their belief in him, knowing that he is Lord, knowing that he is their only chance, but also at the exact same time, they also think they're perishing with Jesus on board. That is the sinful experience all in one sentence. Just think about it. Jesus was with them. He has worked miracles before their eyes, like probably in the last eight or nine hours. They saw it firsthand. They have a witnessed experience of who he is firsthand, and yet they are still in the boat, and they are panic-stricken, and they are thinking that they probably will die. The irony isn't lost on me, because I think if we were all being fair, we'd probably all respond in the same manner. Because there is absolutely nothing new under the sun. God's people are a hard-hearted and thick-headed bunch. I mean, obviously not you guys, but a lot of other God's people. Actually, I mean all of us. It's why we all have to learn things the hard way, right? Just a, a few nights ago, we do family worship in the evening, and a lot of times before, it's just kind of thigh family chit-chat time. But we were, Chris and I were talking about the hard-heartedness of the Israelites. Her and Tristan read scripture and memorize scripture as part of their school program, and they were reading Judges. And Kristen was talking about how God will punish the Israelites, and then they kind of come to their senses for a hot second, and then what do they do? They go do the same stupid thing again after God has already punished them for it, even though they experienced him firsthand. I mean, think about the, thinking about the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain. There's, these, there's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelites witnessing this whole scene take place. And he goes up the mountain, and a couple days later, his brother's like, I don't know if he's coming back down. I mean, we heard the voice of God. We saw the mountain move. You guys want to build, you want to build a golden calf and make an idol while we wait? This was Moses' brother. This was Moses' brother that did this. What about Pharaoh? Pharaoh's continuously hard heart after plague, after plague, after plague rains down upon the Egyptians. There really is nothing new under the sun. You see, the disciples of Christ knew who he was. They acknowledged who he was, but they were still in fear because they lacked faith. And so what does Jesus do? Verse 26, he says to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Before he does anything, he talks to them. The storm is still going on when he's talking to them. He's questioning them. And I would imagine a little bit of it is rhetorical. Yeah, I've, read this, I've read commentaries that kind of make it out. Like, he's like, oh, why are you afraid? Come here, little one. But I don't actually think that's the case, because if you look at the Greek word, again, why, why is, is in the accusative form. He's asking this direct question, why are you afraid? You have no reason to be afraid. That's his statement. Why are you afraid? You have no reason to be afraid. You've seen the miracles. You know who I am. You believe what I say. You're following me here, and you don't believe God will protect us. And, and even if we drown, why are you worried? You're with me. Oh, you of little faith. You are with the Son of God, and you lack faith. That's what he's saying. And see, he's not just saying it to the disciples on the boat. He's saying it to all of us. And how many times have we all been those disciples? We have all the answers in front of us. We have a complete story. We have seen the hand of God in our lives and in lives of others. Everybody here believes in the soul. 
We believe that life is more than just this shell that carries us around. We know scriptures to be true, and yet we act at times like people of little faith. We act like our skills alone are going to save the day. They can't. Only God can. See, God brings us to those places and some, because he sometimes has to remind us that it is we who lack faith, not him. Have you ever thought about that? The lack of faith is never a God problem. God doesn't wake up one day and he's like, I don't have any more faith in you. It isn't God that lacks faith. God is sleeping through the storm. It is always us. We are all the, always the ones that give up first. We are the ones that have the struggle. It is not the other way around. But the struggle is okay because the growth comes out of this struggle. And you see, because God sometimes has to bring the storm into our lives all the way to the point to point out where our lack of faith is. Oh, you of little faith, why are you afraid? I am here. I am always with you. That's what Jesus is saying. So what does he do after he questions the disciples? He rises and he rebukes the winds and the seas, and there was a great calm. He doesn't just stop the storm. He rebukes the storm. He commands the storm. He orders the storm. He does something that only God can do. Psalm 65, verses 5 through 8. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You see, the one who stills the roaring seas is our God. The one who parted the Red Sea is our God. The one who is in sovereign control of everything in the world is our God. Jesus rebukes and calms the storm. He stops the storm, and then what happens? It's a great calm. Think about it. Think about going from seismic earthquake and then a great calm. Because Jesus is God, and he is in control over the seas. This whole scene, what it shows us is God's providence and God's control. I have struggled with God's providence many times in my faith journey, especially when I was newer in the church. I liked the fallacy that I was in full control of every aspect of my life. Now, we should talk at some point about free will and God's providence. It's a bigger conversation. It's probably a Sunday school or, or maybe an out, a multi-week outpost, and we should do that, and we can go right into the problem of evil right after that. But the reality is, nothing happens outside of God's control. If you believe that things can take place outside of God's control, then you don't believe God is fully sovereign and God is actually in control. You are limiting him. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, if you think God can be surprised by things, it makes you an atheist. Because if God is limited, God is no longer God. Our God lives outside of time. He lives outside of space. We use human words to describe an indescribable being. There's a lot of theology that's wrapped up in all of these things, and it's a really wonderful and detailed study, and I'd be happy to chew on any of that with any of you any time. But it's important foundationally to remember that nothing in life happens outside of God's providence. And we really need that. We need to know that because what it means is that every single thing that happens to each one of us is on purpose. And it means that all of our lives have purpose, which is actually incredibly reassuring 
Because if God's providence doesn't exist, and your life is just this series of accidents that brought all of us here today into this place, then there's really no real meaning for anything. We're just kind of making up meaning as we go, and we're doing whatever feels good, and rah, rah, rah. It's just some giant accident. We happen to all be here together in fellowship. But every one of us here knows that's not true, because if we look at all of our paths and we look at how all of these lives have been interconnected, it's not just a giant accident. We were sharing last night a little bit. I mean, it's kind of a crack up to me when I start thinking about all the touch points with each one of you and how we all ended up together and the folks of ours who haven't, aren't able to make it today as well. It's really incredible, actually. And then when we see where the touch points in life touch in all the other places, and then where they've touched in places in our lives before we all knew each other, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing when you stop to really think about it. It's not accidental. It all has purpose. That is providence. The way God weaves all of our stories together for His glory and for His purposes for his sovereignty. What that really means is that the smooth sailing and the storms in life are all ordained by God. All of the events in our life serve his purposes. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of the confessional documents for our church, in chapter 5, I think it's paragraph 5, it says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for, other, and for sundry other just and holy ends. Sometimes God leaves us to our own devices. He is not the author of evil. He is not the author of sin. But when he leaves us to our own devices, it's in attempt to bring us back to our need for him. To bring us humbly upon our knees. He leaves us to the corruption of our own hearts so he can humble us, so he can bring us back, so he can say to us, oh, you of little faith, don't you remember who's really in charge? Don't you know who has the power to calm the sea? Don't you know who it is, the only person that can bring the great calm? Because at the end of the day, the reality is only Jesus, only Jesus can calm the storm. The physical storm, but more importantly, the spiritual storm. This is not health and wealth gospel. I'm not promising you that life will be without struggle. But I am promising you that your loving God says you don't have to go into any storm ever alone. Your loving God says that he can calm the storm that you are experiencing. Oh, you have little faith. Don't you know who is in control? I know why you're anxious. I know why you have fear. And Christ says, stop. Oh, you have little faith. I will provide. I have provided. I will protect. Have faith. This is the only way to weather a storm. It could be sickness, it could be death, it could be financial troubles, it could be lies, it could be the consequences of your own doing. It's usually where it is with me, the consequences of my own doing. But no matter what it is, you're never alone. The God who chose you is with you in the storm, and sometimes he calms it immediately, just like he did with the disciples, and sometimes he doesn't, but he never leaves us. And that's because Jesus has calmed the final storm death. He put death to death. 
That's why our faith should be so deep that no matter what happens, no matter what assails us here, Jesus put death to death, and he has chosen us. He cares for us. He loves us. You are never alone. And it's not even that. It's not just like, I have my personal Jesus, I'm never alone. We have the body, too. You're also never alone by the people that are here and the ones that aren't here today due to the nature of, of some of the vocations of some of our church members, right? But everybody here is in the body together. We are brothers and sisters together. We are brothers and sisters with the Catholic Church, the universal, little c, church. We join together to be the body, to strengthen one another as a reminder of loving each other. I, this isn't in the notes. You have to bear with me for just a second so I can pull it up. But I read this. I read this at funerals. And it's a beautiful piece of scripture. It's 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, sorry, who comforts us in all our affliction, that all word is very important, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. God comforts us because he knows us because he's been fully man. It's incredible. That's why we can comfort each other, why the body comes together to strengthen each other as a reminder that we are never alone. That's why our faith is so important. It's a reminder of why we are saved by our faith and not by our works. But what we put our faith in ultimately determines what we put our trust in. Everybody has faith in something because everybody worships something. We are all designed by God, all human beings, to worship something. So if we put our faith and trust in anything other than God, you will be let down. We all will be let down. I have been let down. But if we put our faith in Christ, it will only strengthen us. Doesn't mean it will be easy. Don't, don't confuse those two things. Don't confuse the, the process of growth with ease. But it's this reminder that everything in our life that happens in our life is providential, has purpose, and even when it's tough, it should give us comfort. Because it reminds us that every part of your life, every part of your experience is ultimately for His glory. Everything that you do has purpose. The fact that you are alive has purpose. Remember that book, The Purpose Driven Life? We are actually living purpose-driven lives. God gave you purpose before you were created. You don't even need a self-help program for this. You need faith in Christ. And here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. With deep faith comes the great calm. You can deal with things that you never thought you could deal with. You can have fear removed. I lived a lot of my adult life in anxiety and fear. Before I was a Christian, I lived my life white-knuckling, living in fear. I lived in a place of wanting control. I wanted control of every aspect of my life. It was exhausting. It was stressful. I didn't sleep. I was crazy skinny. We fixed that problem. At one point, I probably had an ulcer. If I didn't, it sure felt like I had an ulcer for about a year and a half. And it actually all stemmed for me from a lack of faith. And God brought a big storm in my life. And that storm ended up being a spiritual storm. And it was the one where he got in my face to remind me, oh, you of little faith, why are you afraid? As a seminary student, I was reading the Bible in the original languages, and God smacked me in the face with a two-by-four, and he's like, you know, you've been reading this a lot. You should pay attention to it. 
But it wasn't just that one moment and it was gone. It's been that moment ever since. My friend Thad calls it the time when you know that you know that you know. It's when you really, really deeply know Jesus. It's the switch flipping for that all of Christ for all of life. Now, I wasn't there. I don't want to place conjecture in the Bible, but there's nothing new under the sun. We read verse 27, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? You have to wonder if maybe the disciples had these similar moments of when you know, you know, you know, you know. They were marveled. They were amazed. There was awe. In Mark's gospel, he captures the same scene in in Mark chapter 4, verses 41. Verse 41, he says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were filled with fear. Remember, the fear of the Lord, the awe of the Lord. You imagine you went from earthquake to great calm. That's not just like the storm just pushed through. It's immediate. Filled with fear. I would be filled with fear as well. What man has ever controlled the sea? No man has ever controlled the sea. The man calling them people of little faith was the one that they realized, that we all have to realize, is the one that must have all of our faith. The point where you know, where you know, where you know, when it all clicks. What sort of man is this? Because I think you can know, and you can see these things, and then part of our our human experience is like, meh, I mean, I know, but really? It's that sinful part of our heart getting in the way. What sort of man is this? This is God. Jesus is God. Jesus calmed their storm. Jesus calms our storm. Jesus is in charge. It's when you know, you know that you know. You realize it's all God's providence. You're not actually in control of it. Life is actually designed for us to surrender control, to literally give it over to God. That doesn't mean to be lazy, slothful, and a sluggard. You still have to get up and do all the things. We are called to be people of faith. George Michael was right, at least on one thing. You got to have faith. I don't know if he was right on anything else. But it does matter what you have faith in. You see, this story is so much deeper, I think, than just some guys in a boat, some waves. Eek! Jesus, please save us. Ah! The waves are big. The waves are huge. This is actually about the power of God and his providence, how God uses all things for his glory. And it's a reminder for all of us that we're an important part of his story for his glory. It's also a reminder that God never loses faith in us. It's us that separate ourselves from the Lord, not the other way around. But see, we, we should worry not, because the beautiful thing about our Lord is that he has made himself accessible to us, even in the very depths of the storm, in the depths of the pit. He is the great calm that we can call out to. When I used to look at the painting, I used to stare at each of the men in their faces. Some are calm. One looks like he's about to puke over the side of the railing. There's a guy hoisting the sail and kind of holding on for dear life. There's a guy running the rudder. I wish student pilots knew how to run the rudder. Never mind. There's a guy talking with Jesus. So I'd spend all this time looking at this detail of these men and their faces and the details of the waves, the waves as they crash up against the side of the boat. But that's not where I spend most of my time looking anymore. I usually look here, now. I didn't see that at the very beginning when we first hung that painting up. It's easy to get captured in the storm. It's easy to get captured in what's taking place in the storm. 
But if you look at the top left, what do you see? There's blue sky. There's hope. There's a break. There's the great calm. My faith is in that top left corner. There's always blue sky. Now, we may not experience every bit of it here. We may have periods where it's a little bit like England, where it's gray sky and it's rainy for a real long time. But there's always blue sky. There is always the great calm. You are never alone in the storm. Everything in life serves the Lord because Jesus, Jesus is the one who can calm the storm. He is the one who can strip us from our fears, remove us from our anxieties, and bring us into the great calm. And for that, we should be incredibly thankful because we will all, all go through storms in life, but none of us have to go at them alone. We can go in them with joy. It's hard to have joy in the storm. I know that. Job is a good example of the difficulties of trying to remain joyful in the middle of a huge storm. But it does become a reminder for us that this isn't just some giant cosmic accident, that it has meaning and that it has purpose and that God is in control and that you were chosen by him and that he loves you and he will not forsake you. And that is incredible. And that is something that I can joyously say each and every day, thanks be to God, because life can be really hard. But thanks be to God, we have Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful for this ability to come together. Lord, we ask you to bless us. We ask you to strengthen us in our faith. We ask you to forgive us for our unbelief. Lord, may we strengthen each other in our belief. May we remind one another of God's good providence. And may we especially strengthen each other in the times of difficulty. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son, for dying for our sins, for drawing us to you, for picking us before the world was made. Lord, we pray that we may go and do your work for your glory and not ours.